0: business meeting type of stuff and when you have the needs of schedules of kids and you put all that into the picture the need for that type of coordination and partnership just balloons romance i'm going to let mickey cover this in the next message but it's it's important to understand communication plays a vital role in our romance or diluted the bible says they become one general versus detailed a husband might um, you know, report on something like, hey, so-and-so had a baby. Did they have a boy or a girl? They had a boy, and that's it. That may be all they know about that, where the wife may be like, but wait a minute, how, how much did it weigh? Did they do a home delivery or a hospital delivery? Are they gonna nurse, or are they gonna use formula? What's the, what's the baby's major gonna be in college? You know, there's just a lot of information that sometimes a spouse wants to know. That's a difference. Some are more general, some are more detailed. It's important to understand that with these styles, though, There's not necessarily a right or a wrong to these. Now, surely there are times where there may be appropriateness or not appropriateness. If you're a detailed person, let me just tell you it's not appropriate to be sitting next to a widow at the funeral of her husband asking for details about the death. How long did the ambulance take to get there? Was he lying on his face or on his back? That's just really insensitive. And so you need to understand and have discernment around these styles, but understanding your spouse's tendency and how they differ from yours is going to go a long way toward helping you effectively communicate as a married couple. So what are the things that my spouse and I should be talking about? That's our third section, the content of our communication. Now there's one continuum that some people say is a style I disagree. I'm going to argue that it's more than just a style difference. And that's, people talk about stated communication versus implied communication. See, proper communication is more than just saying something. It's also more than just hearing what somebody said. Truly effective communication is when somebody says something to someone, the other person hears what's being said, and then communicates that back in a way that communicates they've understood each other correctly. See, the more a message is implied and not directly stated, the more opportunity there is to be misunderstood. And how many disagreements and conflicts happen because somebody said one thing and somebody else heard something differently? So, for example, if my wife tells me she left her purse out in the car and I say, okay, that may not be what she was communicating. She may have meant to say, can you please go and grab my purse out of the car for me? I forgot it there and I don't want somebody to take it. I might say, I'm really having a hard time seeing what I'm doing here. What is my wife supposed to get from that? Am I simply just stating I'm having difficulty due to my vision and I feel like she needs to know that? Am I explaining that something's taking me longer to do? so?" So when I said that I was going to do something else, I'm going to be a little delayed in having that happen. Am I just communicating to her, I'm struggling in my heart and I'm getting angry at how hard this is for me. Maybe what I'm doing is drowning in self-pity and I want her to come feel sorry for me. You see, Stephanie's response is going to be drastically different depending on which one or one of these is really indicative of what I'm trying to communicate. But how is she supposed to know if i don't say what it is see to make matters worse i most likely have expectations tied to what i'm saying as well and if she doesn't meet those expectations or correct them or get them clarified conflict is probably waiting right around the corner so much is at stake in me making that expression of my task being hard therefore It is so critical that I communicate clearly and effectively what it is I'm trying to say and I make sure any expectations that I have around that are being clearly communicated as well. We're gonna talk more about unmet expectations later, but do you see the danger that can happen in implying or assuming too much? See, the greater the relational intimacy, the greater likelihood my wife's gonna pick up on what I really mean. But there's no way for her to be completely sure unless it is eventually directly stated to her. So what are some categories of our communication? We, we've talked about this some a little bit already, uh, especially in our panel yesterday. There's the coordination and partnership. There's, there's the business meeting aspect of things. You need to coordinate schedules and tasks and plans big and small. And part of this coordination and partnership is taking the time to dream big together. I love what Nick and Jenna said yesterday about having intentional time to evaluate and look forward. I just want to ask, is your busyness that you have in your life productive towards your shared goals, or is it just noise in your life that's hampering you from being effective at what you feel God has called your marriage to? Getting to know each other is another category. We've talked about this a good bit, but the danger of neglecting this can be fatal to a marriage there's a startling number of divorces that are happening to couples that have had their lives focused around kids or other things and they spend decades with that as the goal and then the kids move out and they don't know their spouse anymore and what is being articulated by many of these couples is they feel like they're coexisting with a stranger and they don't even know why they're married anymore and they get divorced See, they didn't know their spouse. Don't presume that you can neglect that relationship in your marriage and then just pick up on it again someday and not have some struggle with that. Paul Tripp says, things don't go bad in a marriage in an instant. The character of a marriage is not formed in one grand moment. Things in a marriage go bad progressively. Things become sweet and beautiful progressively. The development and deepening of the love in a marriage happens by things that are done daily. This is also true with the sad deterioration of a marriage. That's what Jane said last night, the little things. All right, one other area, spiritually caring for each other. Are you talking with your spouse about your relationship with the Lord? What are you learning? What is God teaching you? What are you wanting to grow in? And even more importantly, maybe, are you asking your spouse these questions? Are you drawing them out about what their relationship with the Lord is is bearing in their life? Are you praying for them? Are you praying with them? Guys, this is one of the ways you can lead your family. If your wife is having to regularly ask for this type of time with you, you're falling short of the shepherding husband that God has called you to be. You're not necessarily loving her the way that Christ would love the church, but there's good news. Again, there's abundant grace and mercy for that. Run to the Lord there. God is going to help you grow in this area. And related to caring spiritually for each other, this is a category that sometimes people bristle at a little bit. It's asking for humble correction. That's got to be a category you have in your growth. Let me give you three questions that you can ask that could be really helpful in this regard they're, they're, they're real similar so listen closely what do you want me to start doing that i'm not doing what do you want me to stop doing that i am doing and what do you want me to keep doing that's really a blessing to you those can be very th- three very helpful questions that start to draw out this these answers to questions like how can i be a better husband to you how can i be a better wife Tim Keller says it really succinctly. He says, give your spouse the right to talk to you about what is wrong with you. And then I would say, respond to it well. You don't want to do wrong responses, like withdrawing from your spouse or fighting about it or blaming them. Instead of running away or attacking your spouse, work together with them to graciously help one another grow. We taught on this a few Sundays ago, Ephesians 4, 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. See, humble correction is part of that truthing and love together. It's a gift to us. So what we talk about matters, but it's the heart of what we're communicating that's gonna make all the difference in the world. So it's our next section, the heart of communication. Scripture gives many principles in how we're to communicate to each other. Um, We're only going to talk about a few of those for the sake of time today, but these are important ones. The first one is prioritize communication. Now, at first glance, this may seem more like a practical scheduling issue than a heart issue, but it's really both. It's been said that you can tell where a man's heart is by looking at his checkbook and his calendar, and you'll see where his priorities are. See, when we are effectively stewarding the time that God has given us, we're going to prioritize the things that please Him. If my relationship with my wife is more important to me than watching a movie, then I'm going to turn off the TV and make sure that I'm relating well to my wife and that I'm building relational intimacy with her. And yes, life does get busy in seasons, so plan for that prioritize the time together guard and protect that time together don't let lesser demands win the fight against the things that matter most and for those of you that have lots of children i understand kids lives are busy i mean it feels like you're constantly shuttling them from one place to another you're teaching them you're training them you're cleaning them you're caring for them but keep this in mind What your kids need even more than one more extracurricular activity to experience is they need a healthy home life where parents are relating well to each other. Do you want your kids to have a healthy, thriving marriage one day? Then show them what it looks like. Show them what it looks like. Display the mystery of the gospel that is on display in God's design of a a God-honoring marriage. right, your marriage should also be full of grace. Your communication should be full of grace. Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. See, our speech should build our spouse up, not tear them down. Our speech should give grace to our spouse, not heap condemnation on them. Jesus told us that it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. See, guarding our speech is a heart issue. We must cultivate a grace-filled disposition toward our spouse. It doesn't build up my spouse if I'm nitpicking at every little thing they do or say. It does not build up my spouse if I'm quick to draw attention to everything I think my spouse does wrong. In the Warren household, we've adopted a practice of always assuming the best intention of somebody. So that means if I say something that's just kind of a flippant comment, Stephanie isn't just going to assume I intended to be hurtful to her. She's going to assume the best. We're not going to try and have an immediate trial and and verdict and execution on every tiny little thing that might happen or go wrong. But we're going to assume the best, we're going to be charitable in our judgments, but we also have this agreement that if like something's sticking with someone, like this actually did some wounding and I'm having trouble getting beyond this or I really need to understand what your intent was there, we're going to have that conversation. We just are always going to presume and come in with open hands and the best intention, assuming the best. We're going to eventually need to talk about that. If I did that to my wife, I need to repent to her. And the Lord will usually bring that to mind. But if not, she has um, the right and the opportunity to be able to bring that up at a time when we're maybe not in the heat of the moment. And we can talk about that. And we can follow the principles from the last section about how we, how we do that. See, the principle is basically this. Assume the best of each other. Be charitable in your judgments of your spouse. Seek to build up. And where sin abounds, let grace abound all the more. All right, next thing, be an encourager. Do you call out the evidences of grace that you see in your spouse's life? Are you looking for ways to encourage them? Do you know what methods of encouragement your spouse responds to the most? Mike shared this on Sunday, you know, Kristen doesn't respond well to bringing flowers, so him continuing to bring flowers may not be the best way to encourage his wife or bless her. Husbands, are you helping to establish this culture in your home? Are you leading by example? Ray Ortland says, A wise husband cultivates his wife by setting a high tone of praise and affirmation in the home. Not neutral silence, certainly not insults, but bright, positive, life-giving praise. If you have kids, would your kids say you encourage your spouse more, or criticize them more. All right, next section. Be a good listener. In short, make understanding more important than being understood. Are you as good at listening as you are talking? Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. Winston Smith says, Recognize that your understanding is always shaped and limited by your own perception." You never see everything, you only see what you see. You never hear everything, you only hear what you hear. Proverbs eighteen thirteen says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. So how do you be a good listener? Well, first of all, close the mouth, open the ears. Second, give your full attention to your spouse. Set down the phone, turn away from the TV, look at them and give them your attention third ask questions and then ask more questions so you can really seek to understand and then communicate back what you feel like you heard them say to make sure you're understanding what they're intending to communicate there's so many times with stephanie and i where she'll say something and i'll say so i think you're saying this and she'll be like no no But that gives an opportunity to explain it before we just, I barrel off in the wrong direction trying to fix a problem that's not there. See, these principles are good for everyday communication, but what do we do when conflict arises? Well, guess what? These principles become all the more important in that point. There's some other ones we're going to talk about that are especially helpful during conflict, but let's first talk about steps that we can take to avoid conflict. So our next section is proactively avoiding conflict first of all we shouldn't be surprised that conflicts arise marriage is two people who are not fully sanctified yet rubbing against each other and though christ has saved the believer and the power of sin has been broken his presence is still with us and the sin in our heart regularly spills out onto those around us jesus said in mark 7 he said, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. See, in God's effort to make us more like him, he will ordain circumstances in your life to cause what needs to be purified and rooted out in your heart to bubble up so it can be dealt with. And if we are not privately Mortifying sin in our hearts, he will bring it to light. And sometimes that happens in conflicts with our spouse. So, how do we try and minimize this conflict? How do we seek to live peacefully in our houses? Well, the answer is simple. We start with ourselves, start with yourself. We seek to deal with our own hearts first. We seek to grow in submission to the Lord in all things rooting out that which can ultimately cause harm and destruction to us and those around us. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, a very familiar passage. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We're going to briefly look at three major logs that can regularly lead to conflict in our marriages. And the first one is self-centeredness. Sin at its core thrusts us into the center of all things the world revolves around our wants our desires it's my kingdom come before we think of anybody else's kingdom and this isn't just a learned behavior that happens in some people i mean most of you are parents did you have to teach your toddler to be selfish you didn't we we labor relentlessly and repeatedly to just teach them to share think think of the people around you this self-centeredness is not only unhelpful in our marriage, hear this, it propels us in the opposite direction of love. You don't have to struggle to imagine how toxic this can be in a marriage. Tim Keller says self-centeredness is a havoc-wrecking problem in many marriages and it is the ever-present enemy of every marriage. Therefore, when facing any problem in marriage, the first thing you look for at the base of it is in some measure self-centeredness and an unwillingness to serve or minister to the other james 3:16. for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist there will be disorder in every vile practice not there might be disorder there will be disorder we cannot turn a blind eye or deprioritize our tendencies to put ourselves first And James really wants to make sure we get this because just a few verses later at the beginning of chapter four, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In short, James is saying, You quarrel with each other because you're selfish. You have selfish desires and ambitions. See, when you try to unite two people who are going separate directions, it's just a rife with potential for problems. We must contend with our self-centeredness and by the power of the Holy Spirit, obey God's word that says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. All right, second log, pride. I'm sure each of us is all too familiar with this. Uh, it's that detestable thing driving you when you're in a debate or an argument with someone, and it's, it's getting more and more passionate, and then all of a sudden you realize, I'm wrong. I'm wrong, and they're right. But you keep going because you can't admit that you can't let them savor that victory that's pride in our hearts pride and self-centeredness are closely related pride says my way is best pride says i cannot learn from someone else or at least that person pride assumes your feelings and experience in a situation are the only significant ones that matter and that any other response to something is just ridiculous Pride declares that your needs are the most pressing needs. Pride hinders you from admitting when you're wrong. Pride fuels grudges to be held because after all, that person had the audacity to hurt you, even if they didn't intend to. I could go on and on. Gordon MacDonald says, pride's at the root of almost all marital conflict. Pride is the part of us that cannot face being wrong. Thus, we will not accept criticism easily evaluate facts which suggest we hold the wrong opinion or allow for the possibility that there simply may be times when our partner is right and we are dead wrong. As long as being the strongest, the best, and the rightest is top priority, conflict will be destructive. What a burden is lifted when one no longer has to be right about everything. So helpful. Admittedly, this does fit into the easier said than done category. <laughs> Nevertheless, if husbands and wives would discover, and better yet, still ask their spouses to help them discover where they are tempted to be selfish and purpose to serve, discover where they're tempted to be proud and then purpose to be humble, I think most marriage problems would be avoided. James 4, 6 tells us that God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Gary and Betsy Ricucci summarize what can happen when our self-centeredness and pride combine in our interactions. They say when our desire meets with disagreement or disappointment, we start to see what sort of hold it has on us. If we say to ourselves, I can't believe he doesn't want to talk with me right now, or doesn't she realize I'm tired when I come home from work and just want some time alone? We have a problem. Here, desire has begun to reveal a craving, lust, or sinful passion. You know the line has been crossed when you are no longer counting your spouse as more significant than yourself. Philippians 2.3. We must daily seek to root out pride that's in our hearts and cultivate humility. Our marriages will be enriched by this effort. All right, third log, anger. Anger is the fuel on the fire. It's the thing where we just escalate things. Conflicts shift from just being an original problem and then they escalate because of anger. Discussions turn into arguments. Conversations lead into conflicts. We're going to talk about avoiding this escalation in just a, just a quick moment, but let me just say these two things about anger. First of all, anger is horribly destructive. Proverbs 12:18 says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts but the tongue of the wise brings healing. See, rash words are like sword thrusts. Your outburst of anger is violently wounding the heart of your spouse, which is why the second thing about anger I want to say is so critical. Anger is controllable. It is controllable. I'm just going to pepper you with some Bible truth here. Colossians 3.8. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. See, anger can be put away. Proverbs 29:11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Some ways, it's kind of like when you've seen in movies, or maybe you've done this yourself, where you're in this heated argument, and then the doorbell rings, or the phone rings, and then you answer it like a completely different person than you were just five seconds ago. Hello, hey yeah things are wonderful how are you doing that's the kind of falsehood we want to avoid god's word tells us that good there are good effects to controlling our anger we can control our anger proverbs 15:1 says a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger you know, what's interesting about this verse it isn't just about us controlling our own anger as spouses we can help our spouse control anger by not returning harsh words with harsh words, but with soft words. Proverbs 15:18 says, "A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention." Proverbs 17:27: "Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding." See, it's wise and it bears good fruit in our marriages to count others more significant than yourselves to root out prideful thinking and behavior and then to stamp out and control our anger so if these are your normal ways of dealing with conflict then you may be wondering okay christopher i get it but what do i do then all right i'm glad you asked our last section restoring communication we've already stated conflicts are going to be inevitable but in god's sovereign purposes they can be redemptive in nature Again, Gary and Betsy Ricucci, because God is sovereign and ever at work for our good and our growth and godliness, conflict can always be redemptive. The storms of conflict actually test how we're building our marriages. You can think of conflicts as spiritual pop quizzes from God. (laughs) R.C. Sproul says, even the best marriages have problems. Often the difference between a healthy marriage and a defective one is not the number or severity of problems encountered, but in the way problems are dealt with. So we're gonna buzz through here 10 principles in dealing with conflict and restoring relational intimacy with your spouse. Here we go, principle number one. Be a peacemaker. This may seem basic, but you need to determine to do this. You don't wanna continue being a peace breaker. You don't wanna fake peace, you don't wanna be a peace faker. You want to be a peacemaker. You want to desire and determine to have reconciliation and true peace that comes from that. All right, principle number two, plan for conflict. Understand, conflicts are going to arise. Grow in knowing your spouse. What tempts them? Where do they struggle? Let this increase your sensitivity to them and not just be bullets that you hold on to when you really want to do damage. Form a game plan with your spouse before a conflict starts. This is infinitely hard to do once you're in the middle of a conflict. It's kind of like gathering the family into the living room to kind of develop a skate plan in the case of a fire while the house is burning down around you. <laughs> you need to do it beforehand. Are there certain things you're willing to agree to that may be helpful to be reminded of in the midst of a conflict? Having these verses I'm getting ready to read in your game plan might be helpful. Psalm 103:10 He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Ephesians 4:32 Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.12.13, 13 Mike read this last night, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive you get the idea the following principles that we're going to go through might also be things you might want to mutually agree to in your game plan principle number three this is an important one avoid gossiping and slandering your spouse Don't talk to others about your problems with your spouse if you haven't talked to your spouse about the problems. Don't rally support from a posse of friends who see your limited perspective and have reinforced your attack plan when you go after your spouse. That is not helpful. Go back to the self-centeredness and pride things from earlier. If you have a problem with your spouse, go to them. If your spouse is like me, most of the hurtful things that I do to my wife aren't really intentional, intentional, I'm just oblivious, I'm neglectful, I'm careless. Tell your spouse and give them a chance to recognize that and quickly repent to you about that. All that being said, give your spouse permission to talk to select other folks if they feel like they have tried to engage you and you are not being responsive to them. My wife knows she has my blessing to reach out to a few select guys that we've talked about that if she feels like she's trying to get my attention around something and I'm shutting her down or I'm not responding well to it, she has my preemptive blessing to go grab those guys and get them involved in this. She doesn't need to worry about sinning behind my back or gossiping or slandering because I've released her to go do that. All right, principle number four. We've talked about this. Assume the best about your spouse. Enter into the discussion with an open mind, not having predetermined who's right and who's wrong and exactly why that's the case. Don't start out assuming the worst of your spouse. You certainly wouldn't want them doing that to you. All right, principle number five. Get to the root of the issue and don't muddy the waters with peripheral issues. This often involves asking a ton of questions. Listen, seek first to understand Here's some guidelines. Understand the issues. Really seek to understand them. Understand what that person really means. That's that returning the communication back to them to make sure you're hearing what they're saying. Three, avoid courtroom scenarios by being accusatory, defensive, or judging their motives. For example, don't say, you tried to hurt me with those words. Instead, say, I felt hurt when you said this to me. See the difference? You're not judging someone's motive, but you're honestly expressing your experience. Stay on the subject. Don't start going down every rabbit trail that brings it or bring in every marital conflict you've ever had into the conversation. Stay on point and make discovering where you were wrong more important to you than pointing out where you think your spouse was wrong. And be quick to repent and ask forgiveness. Remember the log and speck from Matthew 7. Listen and seek to understand. All right, principle six. We actually just kind of mentioned it. Be quick to confess your sin. Confess your sin to the Lord and your spouse. See, any sin you commit is first against the Lord. Humbly admit you were wrong. Express your sorrow for your sin and ask for forgiveness. And then principle seven, be quick to forgive. We read this just a moment ago, Ephesians four thirty two. be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, we can forgive because we've been forgiven. Whatever debt we feel owed from our spouse because of their sin against us pales in comparison to the debt of ours that has been forgiven in Christ. As believers, we strive to be more like Christ. This is a way we can do that. We must not hold our spouses to a merit system where Christ has not held our wrongs against us. Let's be Christ-like in how we treat each other. Romans 5.20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Make sure the debt has been canceled and not just stored in a back room to be brought out at a future time and weaponized. Make sure forgiveness has happened. The command to forgive is exactly that. It's a command. Forgiveness is not conditional on the other person's behavior. It's not like, well, I'm gonna submit to him if he loves me better, or I'm gonna love her if she submits to me better. It's not that type of tit for tat. It's not like trading something with someone you don't trust where you're both like holding on to it to try and make the exchange just at the right time. You go first. Go first. Obedience to Christ does not make forgiving others optional, even if they don't forgive you. All right, principle number eight. Have both urgency and patience. Don't let sin get a foothold. Be quick to deal with the little things. Little things just mount up and turn into big things when they're not dealt with. Marriages rarely crumble from a single act. You do not want these to turn into major offenses that can be more painful and even harder to recover from or rebuild from. Don't let things fester. Have a sense of urgency. But also cultivate patience in your heart. Change often doesn't just happen like that. You may have been thinking about something for weeks or even months, and then you dump it on your spouse and demand an immediate response to it. That's not really fair. Give them some time to think about it, to process it, to pray about it, for the Holy Spirit to work, if necessary, to convict them and show them and illuminate what's going on. Trust God to work in your heart and your spouse's heart over time. And hear this, commit to love them in the process. We're not on a merit system. We should not withhold affection. We should not withhold care from our spouses until they agree we were right and they were wrong. The term for this is forbearance. And again, Gary and Betsy Ricucci are so helpful in helping helping us understand this. Forbearance is not just tolerance. It is a commitment grounded in faith to love a fellow sinner in full acknowledgement of his or her unconfessed sin. It is an active and sometimes difficult decision to respond to sin with mercy, in the confidence that God is always at work in the heart of your spouse. Committing yourself to serve in the sanctification process over time is not to ignore or excuse your spouse's sin. It is to recognize that the Spirit of God generally brings illumination, understanding, and conviction gradually. Humble patience in a conflict echoes. The long suffering nature of God's love for us. All right, principle number nine follow up and ensure that there really is full reconciliation over the issue. Reconciliation requires true confession and repentance. And confession and repentance is not simply saying, I'm sorry, and the other person going, That's okay. If someone sinned against another, it's not just adequate to say, I'm sorry. We must confess our sin and ask for forgiveness. Also, if we're the one that's being repented to, please do not respond with something unhelpful like, don't worry about it, or that's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay when we sin against each other. But maybe what you meant to say was, I forgive you and we are okay. Then say that. Say, thank you for confessing your sin. I forgive you. I'm not going to hold this against you. We are okay. We're reconciled. I love you. See, with vague don't worry about our responses, we actually don't communicate a release of that person from the debt that they owe us. And we may pile up even more sin on it by walking in unforgiveness and getting increasingly bitter about it. Don't Make it easy on the enemy who loves to use things like this to disrupt our marriages. Don't play into his hand. All right, principle number 10, and this may be one of the most important ones. There is hope for change. Long-term problems can present a unique challenge to couples as they begin to come to grips and with the changes that need to happen. See, asking forgiveness is not the last step to a re- rebuilding process. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's the first step to a rebuilding process. See, one of the most common challenges in big conflicts is discouragement coming in the midst of the rebuilding process. We need to fight the pull toward discouragement because God is at work in our marriages. It's not just up to us. His Spirit is working to finish the work that He started in us. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is working in each believing spouse to change them and bring them closer together. And guess what? That Holy Spirit, He's pretty capable of doing some pretty impossible things. We can have hope in our marriages when something looks impossible because God is at work in us. Winston Smith says, if you've experienced enough of these ordinary moments without sensing any change, you either become accustomed to the annoyance and indifferent to it, or worse, you abandon any hope for change. Indifference and hopelessness are both dangerous. The danger isn't simply that you're unhappy or that your marriage is less than it could be. It's that God becomes increasingly irrelevant to your marriage, the relationship that defines your life more than any other. We don't want God to become increasingly irrelevant in our marriages. So how do you apply these principles? Real simple. Maintain hope acknowledge progress when you see it acknowledge the two percent growth that you see don't fixate on the 98 percent that still needs to happen celebrate the, the milestones along the way and resist the urge when you hit speed bumps in this process to just throw your hands in the air and say nothing's changed you don't go back to zero that quickly And don't settle for anything less than the best that God has for your marriage. He's the one who has designed it and fills it and empowers it to reflect the mystery of his relationship to the church. Winston Smith says the most dangerous moments in marriage and life occur when you believe that nothing you do will make a difference. God desires your marriage to be pleasing to him even more than you do even more than you do, the one who spoke galaxies into being desires your marriage to be one that pleases him. Trust in him. Follow his leading and his commands and then watch him carry out his good plan for your good and for his glory. All right, let's pray. Father, we need help in these ways, Lord. These folks are like me, just even preaching through this again i'm just so aware of areas where i need to grow in this lord father thank you for your commitment to us lord lord may we leave here with some practical ideas and things to implement that can make a difference in our marriage but lord may we not become self-reliant in these things we know it's you that needs to do this work in our hearts lord so we ask you to do that lord show us, illuminate areas in our heart where we have logs, where we are contributing to poor communication, where we are sowing the seed or fertilizing conflict in our marriages. God, forgive us. Forgive us for not reflecting what you designed marriage to reflect. But Lord, we, we have hope. We ask you to fill us fresh with your spirit, Lord. Fill our marriages fresh fresh, Lord, that we would grow in godliness. We would grow in honoring you. We would grow in in relating to our spouse as well, and that we would do this for your glory, Lord. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.